Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and in this 50-minute hour, we will be featuring guests that use dynamic thinking and therapeutic interventions to bring about growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you'd like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes or buy one of our recommended books through Amazon that are featured on our webpage, www.cogps.org. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The links to our profiles will be in the description below. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for future guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us. We're at coloradogroups at gmail.com. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events. So I'm your host, Angelo, broadcasting from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. So the Group Dynamics Dispatch is very honored to have today Dr. Robert Pepper. Dr. Robert S. Pepper is a fellow of the American Group Psychotherapy Association. He has recently authored a new book, Some People Don't Want What They Say They Want, 100 Unconventional Interventions in Group Psychotherapy. Dr. Pepper has published over 30 articles on group therapy. He has been leading analytic psychotherapy groups for almost 40 years in his private practice in Forest Hills, New York. He is an adjunct assistant professor of behavioral science at the Metro campus of New York Institute of Technology in Manhattan. And since publishing uh, his first book in 2014 titled Emotional Incest in Group Psychotherapy, A Conspiracy of Silence, Dr. Pepper has lectured at professional conferences across the country on the subject of ethics and boundaries in group psychotherapy. Also since that time, Dr. Pepper has published more than a dozen articles on various topics related to group therapy. One piece, Escaping Addiction, was published in the New York Times March 1st, 2016. Recently, Dr. Pepper has presented workshops at professional conferences in the United States and Canada on his methods of employing unconventional interventions in group psychotherapy. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Pepper. Well, thank you for that great introduction. I'm impressed, I'm impressed by myself. <laughs> thank you, Angela. Well, it speaks to just um, how comprehensive your career has been, and we're incredibly excited to be talking to you this morning. Well, it's such a pleasure. I'm always interested in sharing my ideas. And um, so let's get started. Ask me question. Well, to begin with, um, I'd like to first find out from uh, my guests about how they got into the field of mental health and into group psychotherapy in particular. Okay. So um, there's a concept in Yiddish called beshert. You know what beshert means? It means fate. Fate. I was fated. I, yeah. I didn't want to be a, a therapist to begin with. In fact, my first career goal was to become a college professor. I, I was in graduate school studying for a PhD in sociology. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the Vietnam War, and so 
1968, uh, President Johnson did away with graduate deferment, and I was a group of us were given the option of either going into the army, being drafted, or to teach in ghetto schools. But ghetto school here in New York in the Bethesda community, and that changed my life. Uh, it was in working with kids that I began to realize that I. I wanted more emotional contact with people than being a college professor could provide. At the same time, I started my own personal psychotherapy. One of the one of my colleagues at the school where I taught was in treatment, a very bright guy, and I had um, recently been involved in a romantic relationship that went very bad, was uh, failed, and even at that tender age, I was 22 at the time, I realized that I must have had something to do with it. And I couldn't figure it out on my own. So I decided I'd better therapy. The only criteria at that time for finding a therapist was somebody whose office was near where I lived. That's how naive I was. And so I asked my friend if he could ask his therapist for somebody who lived or worked in my neighborhood. And that's how I started therapy. And um, as it turns out, it was the best thing and one of the worst things that ever happened to me. I'll, I'll tell you more about it. Um, the man who I started therapy with uh, introduced himself the first day when I went to his office he opened the door and he looked like um, a guru he, he had a shaved head with a Fu Manchu mustache he wasn't wearing any shoes and he ushered me into the office and I thought this has got to be a dream and he sat in the lotus position and uh, I was captivated by this guy I thought this guy must know something. And I stayed with him for many years. And it was through the process of therapy that I decided that I wanted to be a therapist. One of my experiences with this man, named was Sid Cohn, uh, was he ran groups and he ran a men's group. The first group that I was ever in was a men's group that uh, I was in for about eight years. It was the most powerful experience, therapy experience I've ever had before or since. And that... <clears throat> that made a big difference. At some point during my therapy, he said to me, you know, I think you'll make a good therapist. Why don't you join my clinic and train with me? And I was flattered, of course. I thought, you know, my therapist thinks that highly of me. So I went into his training program. And that was, again, one of the best and worst things that ever happened to me. I found myself a new career, which I love and still do. But I saw things about the profession that we could talk about later in terms of ethics and boundaries that I never would have seen had I just remained as a patient. So that's how it got started. Uh, it was completely, I blundered into it. I just blundered into it. And four years later, I'm still doing it. So is that, that's the, is that that's the feeling of fate that it sounds like you were describing earlier, that this was kind of, uh, it felt destined in a way that this happened. That's right. It was, that's how, that's exactly right. Right. So... In my understanding from your, fir your first book, which I uh, have been really impacted by and would love to talk to you more about, The Emotional Incest and Group Psychotherapy, um, teases out some of what you experienced in that first situation in terms of the dilemmas of blurred uh, boundaries and a shifting frame. Is that right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And um, I began to have uh, untoward experiences in that environment. Uh, but I couldn't make sense of it at the time because I was enmeshed in it. And uh, there were other considerations 
uh, involved. And so it was only when I was out of that environment that I began to find out that there were people who had written about it. Uh, the first article I read was by a man and wife couple from Oklahoma, uh, Temelin and Temelin. And they talked about uh, therapy cults. And that, that was an eye-opening experience to read that because they pretty much documented things that I experienced and couldn't explain. And when I read that, I decided I had to write about my experience in the hope that I could help people avoid going through what I went through. Um, I'd to talk about that, but perhaps we should talk about the first the book that we, um, you just read, the one about uh, people want what they say they want first. And we can go back to the photo. Absolutely. Let's do that. So you, um, as you're saying, you have a new book out. Some people don't want what they say they want. 100 Unconventional Interventions in Group Therapy. And um, just finished this book and I found it to be very, very engaging. Highly recommend it to the audience of our listeners. Would you be willing to say a little bit about what inspired you to write this book at this time? Absolutely. Uh, A couple of things inspired me. First, uh, over the last few years, as you uh, mentioned, I've been giving workshops on my methods of working with difficult groups and difficult patients. And more often than not, participants in the workshop would say to me, well, where can I read more about your techniques? And I thought, well, why not? So it was based on that partly that I decided that I should write something. And uh, initially, the idea to write the book was to uh, provide professional audience with my theories and my methods. But as I was writing it, I thought, you know, general readers who were psychologically minded might be able to enjoy this book too. So that provided a shift. The book was originally in my mind titled 99 Unconventional Interventions in Group Psychotherapy. But um, my brilliant daughter said to me, Dad, if you want this book to be available to the general audience, you've got to change the title. It's too stuffy. <laughs> so I thought, all right, how could I make this more of an engaging title? And as you see, and you, when, when you read the book, you realize that my real interest in, in working with groups is resistance. That despite the fact that we all want, or we say we want to have healthy and successful relationships, many of us undermine the very thing that we seek. So the title comes from that, that there are forces that exist that uh, undermine our very quest for this thing that we say we want, which is basically the Freudian concept that all behavior is motivated. The basic theory of the book is that um, there exists an unconscious mind. It's, it's, a, it's a concept and doesn't necessarily uh, resonate with everyone, but I believe that there is an unconscious and predicated on that belief, everything else follows. If you believe that people are dr- driven by forces that are out, out of their awareness, that opens the door towards this kind of ambivalence, conflict, whatever you want to call it, that drives people's behavior. <clears throat> Am I being clear, Angela? Is this... You're being very clear. I mean, what I'm, I'm hearing you say is that really central to the way you work is understanding that people often do things without even realizing why they may be doing them or, or not doing things without realizing why they're doing it. It's unconscious. Right. And, right. Uh, so people may consciously say they want one thing, but then they do things to sabotage that, which becomes the resistance. 
Exactly. And the, the, the fascinating thing is that I've observed that when people are individual therapy, they, everybody has a spin of their life. We all have a story. For some people, the spin is a negative spin, but people are invested in a spin. But in group, the diff, one of the major differences between group and individual is that in group, people actually play out that spin. You see it right before your very eyes. I'll give you a, an example. I saw a woman for individual therapy for about a year where the constant theme of her individual therapy was how she was being mistreated by her older sisters. In her mind, she was like Cinderella and her sisters were the oldest, uh, the uh, wicked stepsisters. And any attempt I made to try her, try to get her to understand that maybe she had something to do with it was met with this uh, stone wall. But after about a year, I thought, I think group could help this person. And I asked if she'd be willing to join a group, one of my groups. And she was initially resistant, but she trusted me enough to, uh, to try it. And Angela, the most amazing thing was that the first night that she was in group, which in the first 45 minutes of that group experience, this woman verbally abused all the other women in that group to the point where I said to her, you know, I think it would be a good idea if you just sat and listened for a while. What I was really thinking was, if you don't stop this, I'm going to have to remove you. Um, but I learned so much about this woman in 45 minutes in a group environment. And as much as I learned about her in a whole year of individual therapy. And that just was a, uh, a mind-blowing experience for me. And it convinced me that I was on the right track in, in studying group. And for a while, she didn't get it. But over a number of months, she began to see the connection between the way the world treated her and what she did. And so that was so gratifying to me that this experience would not have been, I don't know if it ever would have happened in individual, but if it did, it would have taken much longer than it did with this experience in group. So, so in that group context, you were really able to see it in action. It was visceral. Absolutely. And I see it every day in action, how people have a spin and the group provides kind of a mirror because most people don't know how they come across. They don't see it. And the group provides that feedback. And uh, some people get it. And then as you read in my book, there are some people who never get it. But that, that's the way of the world. I've learned that uh, I have to be humble and respect people's resistance because not everybody wants to change, even though they say they change and they want to change. So that's the theme. That's the general theme of that new book. Right. Well, what, what comes to mind when you share that an example, and it's, it's a fantastic example, throughout the book, you talk about different situations where a member of the group is enacting a, a pattern that they're there to be working on. And other members of the group really begin to notice it and begin to challenge the person about what's happening. And I was struck throughout the book by you talking about ways that you would step in in those moments and you would join or protect a member. Right, right. And I wondered if you could say more as about how you as a group leader decide during those choice points, what, when do you let members continue to give feedback to a, to a member, to another member? And at what point do you decide you want to join with them to help kind of modulate the stimulation of what's happening in the room? Okay, that's a great question. And it's a kind of complicated answer. But I'll begin with the, uh, the notion of the contract. In the, my work with doing group therapy, um, I trained with uh, Lou Armand for many years. You know, Lou Armand, he was uh, a world-renowned group therapist. 
he was a great proponent of the contract. And the contract is basically a simple statement, but much harder to uh, implement. And the contract is simply group members have an agreement to say how they feel to the other members in the group and why they feel that way. The contract is focused on emotion. And so contract is in place in part because I expect people to default on it. People, most people, if you read the first chapter of my new book, don't understand the difference between a feeling and a thought. And in that first chapter, I enumerate all these uh, spontaneous interaction stoppers based on people's confusion about what a feeling is. So for example, when I was in uh, a therapy group, I'll never forget, a woman said to me, I feel that you're crazy, she said to me. And I said to her, you know, you may be right, but that's not a feeling. She was using her intellect as a way of attacking me. So I insist on people stating their feeling. And if they, they go off into a thought, I step in. I wanted to keep at that level. But the other point is, as I said before, there's always resistance. And so when people confront the individual who is doing their spin, I respect the resistance. You can't take somebody's character structure away from them uh, without creating great damage. And quite frankly, it's it's almost impossible to do. So I'm always wary of anybody who's trying to change somebody else's behavior. So that's one basis on which I I make an intervention. But the other thing that Ormond stressed and I think is critical is the concept of progressive emotional communication. That's the goal of what I'm looking for when I do a group that people will talk to each other in a way that's progressive. In other words, the relationship moves from one point to another. It's emotional and that it's fused with spontaneous feeling and it's communication, it's interactive. And so I'm always looking for, is the interaction between people in this group on that path? And if it's not, that's when I decide to make an intervention. An intervention is a good intervention if it fosters emotional communication. It's a bad intervention if it stops it. And one of the things that I learned in my own training was that interpretations don't necessarily work well with difficult people. Because interpretations are of the intellect. They appeal to the person's awareness. But emotions aren't of the intellect. Personalities are formed within the first few years of life before any words. And so to approach a person intellectually uh, not only falls short, but under certain circumstances actually does damage. For example, when I was a student, a trainee at at an institute, I was working with a homicidal, schizophrenic, paranoid male patient. One day he came in with a bottle of Coca-Cola as a gift for me. So as a new therapist, I didn't know. I just accepted the gift as it was. But when I went to my supervisor, who was a classically classically trained analyst, he told me that at the next individual session, I should interpret this man's gift to me, this Coca-Cola bottle, as a phallic symbol. Angela, can you imagine if I actually said that? Even at that time, I knew said something like that. Might spark spark some kind of uh, homicidal rage in this guy to prove to me that, in fact, he wasn't gay. So... Right then and there, I I learned a valuable lesson that this supervisor didn't really know what he was talking about. And so it started my quest to find other people who had other approaches 
And as I said, I, I, I found myself gravitating toward uh, Lou Orman. I studied with other people who were in that group, like Lena Fajeri, Lord rest her soul, you know, she just recently died. She was a wonderful uh, supervisor and friend to me. I worked with uh, Leslie Rosenthal and Larry Epstein. I found that those people had awareness about what motivates people and what gets groups moving and what kind of interventions work. And so I studied with them. And that's where I learned about joining and mirroring and outcrazing and all those different things that I use when I think the communication is bogging down and something needs to be done to get the interaction between people back on track to this progressive emotional communication. Well, that was fantastic. I mean, I think you, you just said quite a lot. And what I, one of the big takeaways I'm hearing is that interpretations can often be experienced as an attack, the way this man in your group might have experienced it if you had actually said that to him right. or interpreted it as, as a phallic symbol. Right. And uh, what also comes to mind for me is uh, I've always enjoyed when Winnicott said, you know, there's only two reasons why somebody would use an interpretation. Uh, to show the client that the that the analyst is awake, and to show the client that uh, they can be wrong, uh-huh. right? And neither one helps the client. And neither one helps the client. That's right, or the group, or the group. It's always self-serving. I always thought interpretations were a way of a therapist showing off. And uh-huh. by the way, I'm not immune to it. Sometimes I fall into it myself and make an interpretation. But in a good group, they call me on it. Can't get away with that. So, absolutely right. So uh, does that answer your question about the timing of interpretations, uh, interventions, I mean, is based on whether I think the group is bogged down in a, um, in a resistance. But at the same time, I want to protect the person who uh, may be identified as the resistor. Like in the chapter I wrote about the, uh, it's called the ego and the id. Did you read that one about the group monopolizer? He was a, he was a encounter, but he thought he was a rabbi and he would pontificate his knowledge. And I waited for the group to say something, but they didn't. And it occurred to me that this was not just an individual resistance, but it was a group's resistance. They were using this guy to avoid their own emotional difficulties. And he was willing to be used. He did it in group, but he also allowed himself to be used on the outside. So, after watching this for a while and seeing that nobody was responding, I finally said to the group, at the beginning of one group, I called this guy Manny, you know, and that wasn't his real name. I called, I said to the group, so what portion of the Bible should Manny talk about today? And the group exploded with anger toward me and they blamed Manny. And I said, no, this is not Manny. I protected Manny. I said, this is a, a group resistance. You're not, the group is not following the contract and you're using Manny. And so that opened the door to a whole discussion of aggression towards me, which I thought the group resistant really was. The, the contract is saying how you feel. They weren't saying it. And not saying it, they were defying my contract or the group contract. And to me, that's a, that's indication of aggression of a group toward the leader. And then it all came out. All the aggression came out. And as you can see from that chapter, it, it opened the door to a... a a more open discussion about feelings, about authority, about hiding stuff, about what's really bothering people. So that it turned out great. I mean, uh, but it was based on my frustration with the group and the realization this was not just this man's problem. It was a group. 
there was a there was a group as a whole resistance, which he resolved by uh, confronting the entire group on what everybody in the room was enacting, rather than just this one member. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Which would have been a scapegoating dynamic. I, I was struck by it. Seems like you're very, very attuned throughout a group process to any kind of scapegoating dynamics in the way that could be a real treatment destructive resistance. Exactly right. Scapegoating is always a group's turning on a weaker member and protecting the leader from aggression that's really directed toward the leader. For example, if I put in somebody new in the group and the group does not like this person, I'll say to the group, well, if you don't like who I put in a group, take it up with me because I put them there. I want the aggression turned back at me. And usually they don't like the person because something about that person reminds them of qualities in themselves that they don't like. Uh, so this <clears throat> scapegoating is uh, a pernicious uh, group uh, tactic. And personally, I'll tell you, I was also in, um, in the other book talking about my own experience of having been in that position of being a scapegoat and not being protected by, by the leader. And I made a decision, even at that early stage, that I would never allow that to happen in my own groups, that I knew what had to be done to protect that person. So this is not just an academic experience for me. Absolutely. It's a personal one. Yeah, right. That's right. Sure. So, so one of the things I'm always curious about and interested in is, is um, how a leader decides whether to remain silent and let the group work and how much to actually intervene oneself, as, as well as just different ways a group leader may respond to the group or to a particular member and how verbally to do that versus how non-verbally in terms of eye contact and posture and pitch, prosody of speech, all of the kinds of non-verbal ways that a group leader communicates uh, to the group on a deeper emotional level. And uh, I'm hearing you say that you really often actually sit back and prefer to see the group do the work but you're more likely to be active and step in if it seems like the group is getting stuck in a particular way. Is that right? Or is there more you may say or elaborate on that? Well, the reality is I'm also human. And so while I say that if the group is functioning according to the contract and people are saying how they feel toward each other and why they feel that way, I'll let it play out. If that's not happening, I definitely will step in. But there are times when my own, impatience, I suppose, gets in the way. Some years ago, a former supervisor of mine recognized my, my problem with impatience. And he recommended that I, half jokingly, he recommended I nibble on impatience plans to kind of resolve my own tendency to want, want to get things moving again. So, um, which brings back a larger problem. In order to be a successful, I believe, a successful group therapist, therapist has to feel... Um, what's the word, um, adept at, at dealing with aggression, your own aggression and the aggression of, of the members. You can't run a group without engendering aggression. It's a natural byproduct of the structure of a group. You put eight to 10 people in a small room for a short period of time. People are going to want to talk for the most part. And some people are going to get shut out. So there's always some kind of aggression going on. So the lead, has, lead has to be adept at handling aggression. So in certain situations where I'm running a group, there's one chapter I wrote about, it's called a nice group, where people really avoided the contract by just focusing on um, superficial things, outside the group stuff, 
if they talked about personal feelings towards each other, it was only positive. I could feel the deadness in the room. When I'm sitting in a group and I am feeling tired or uh, drowsy, I see that as an induced feeling. And I, I should say that one of the skills of being a group leader, as you well know, is your own body is your own instrument. You have to be attuned to what you're feeling in order to uh, design an intervention. And the, the, the key to it, the skill of it, is to feel the feeling, know what it is, not go into action, but somehow use that in the service of the group. So, for example, um, in one particular group session of this nice group that was droning on and on, um, I was feeling drowsy, I was feeling tired, and I was feeling bored. And I turned to somebody in the group who seemed to be feeling or acting that way too, but they didn't want to be, uh, they didn't want to rock the boat. They, they're the kind of person that want to, that would kind of uh, go along to get along kind of a thing. So I said to him, are you bored with this? And he shot back up at me and he said, how did you know? And it opened the whole thing up. It was, <laughs> how did I know? I didn't want to say to him because I'm bored too. I didn't say that. That opened the door to a discussion about, first of all, his own tendency to subvert himself. And sure enough, one by one, other people caught him to it. They said, well, you know, it seemed to be going all right. I didn't want to make waves. And I said, with an attitude like that, you'll be in therapy a hundred years. So you got to have a sense of humor too. I think part of, part of the skill of it is in moments where it's really tense, um, humor can be used to diffuse a situation, but you can't plan for that. You know, it's always spontaneous. In one group I had, in one chapter I talk about the explosive group member, a guy who was given to rages and he could, uh, something could set him off in a snap and he, he's, he was actually um, capable of harming people. And he did so in other parts of his life. Well, in one group, uh, he, he felt ignored by me. I was focusing on somebody else and I could see he was getting angry and angry. Big guy, and he's like six foot three, 300 pounds. He could have killed me with his bare hands. I mean, he, was, he had worked as a bouncer in a nightclub. He was a martial arts expert. And so he stands up and starts to menace me. And I, he says to me, what am I, wood? He was feeling ignored. And I had the feeling that he was coming at me. And I said, uh, I said, sit down and talk. I said, if you kill me, you'll be killing your group analyst. So that stopped him for a second. And he sat down and he began to talk about his, his uh, rage when he feels like he's not getting his. And of course, that opened the door to his talking about what his life was like as, as a child. He came from a horrendous background. Not only was he ignored as a child, but, it, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> there was such sibling rivalry in that family. The parents would leave him in the, in the uh, care of his older brother when they would go out and the brother, according to my patient, literally tried to kill him. And so whether he literally did or not, I don't know, but this guy grew up with a tremendous amount of fear and hate and also terror. And so all of that stuff would come out in a rage, but underneath it was a terrified little kid. So if you ask me how I did it, you know, in retrospect, I can give it back to you, but the reality is, after studying it, the training, <laughs> being in my own therapy, it just happens as it happens, you know, and make mistakes along the way. Um, 
but I, as I say in the book, if the mistakes are based on an honest uh, misjudgment rather than malice, the group will generally forgive me. And in fact, it helps people when I make mistakes to, to accept their own foibles. Because if I can screw up, so, so, so can they. Absolutely. And it sounds like kind of being able, the group members being able to work with their disappointment with you can actually be very empowering to them. I say to people who are disappointed and some people are disappointed with me and they threaten to leave the group. And I'll say to them, well, why can't we continue to work together even if you're disappointed with me? Why is that a deal breaker? Well, then it often leads back to other situations where they were bitterly disappointed and then they can't tolerate, they can't tolerate that. They have to go into action. So everything to their history, everything can be tied back and that's how, <coughs> that's how, you, another way, you know, a group is running well. If people make connections between what's going now and the present and their personal history <coughs> without going through an interpretation. Right. Well, well something um, strikes me so far in this interview that also uh, struck me in the book, which is your access to all of these stories. I mean, I, I think it came up in the bio that you've been in practice for 40 years. And there's one thing that was so engaging about this book is that it's really an educational book told through story rather than theory so much. It seems like you really... Uh -huh. use the story as a launching pad to discuss theory, but what comes across first and foremost are uh, the stories of what's happened in your groups and really the characters. And it's told in such a way that it really invites the reader in. And I feel you know invited in even during this interview to some of these incredible stories that you've had from your groups. So it made me wonder how have you um, retained all of these stories from your practice. Mm -hmm. And it, it, honestly, where my mind went was, I wonder if, if Dr. Pepper like takes notes after every group about what occurred in the group um, and how he's able to um, call on all of these different experiences that he's had with groups and to fashion them into such a book. Mm -hmm. Well, I got to tell you, I, I'm very pleased and, and gratified by what you're saying about the book because they're touching a part of me that I really hope that people would get, and that is the stories. It's, <clears throat> I don't know if this is another book like this, but the, the point is that I wanted to draw my readers in with the stories because it's, it's all about people and the theories along the way um, are important, but everybody can relate to the, the feelings that come out in these, hopefully in these stories. And I, and I think it's, I hope that it's touching, you know, that hope that gets to you and gets to the readers in a in a profound way so to answer your question when i finally decided to write the book i thought how the hell am i going to remember a hundred stories over the last 40 years you know i mean it's like it seemed like an impossible task in reality there may have been maybe a dozen maybe a little bit more of stories over the years that i never forgot because they were so powerful like the story of the hiv the murderous rage of the hiv positive man you remember that story about the guy who came to group after he had gotten beaten up? He had unprotected sex after his boyfriend died and how, how powerful that was. Well, that was a story that happened maybe 30 years ago. So I thought maybe I should think about what's going on now. So believe it or not, I actually brought in a, a legal pad and pen into the groups and sat 
in the group room with this pad by my side. And every once in a while, I jot down a note about something that happened in the group that I thought would be worthwhile expanding on. And so the group, for the groups first didn't know what was going on and nobody said anything, which I thought was straight. But then finally people said, well, what are you writing? So I said, well, what do you think I'm writing? So one guy said, well, I think you're writing down the shopping list that your wife told you to bring home milk and eggs and butter for dinner. <laughs> you didn't want to forget what you're supposed to bring home. But then, uh, you know, I explained, well, I'm not using anybody's name. And in the uh, very beginning of the book, I, there's a disclaimer that the stories are compilations of people. And I put things together in a way. And some of it is, is even um, coming, coming out of my own imagination. In any case, so I... And then all the stuff started. I don't know if it was timing or what, but all these fascinating things started happening over this period of time. One group, I had the pad and pen by my, my side, for, and some people were objecting to the right, uh, the note-taking. Well, I kept the pad and pen by the, my side, and then one group, I didn't write anything. And people got annoyed that I wasn't writing anything. They said, what is this, a boring group? Why aren't you writing this down? <laughs> So, you know, you can't please everybody. So that's how it came about. And um, it's a compilation of stories that I remember because they had such a strong impact. And within the last year or so, events that took place in the group that I thought were compelling. So that's how it happened. Well, I think uh, part, of the, part of what I've, I found myself enjoying about it was that process of identification that you know, all of these different members that you get to hear about in their lives and some of the themes that they're working with, it's just um, captivating to be able to identify or partially identify with them as well as um, how you discuss what's happening inside of you and the feelings that are occurring for you. Yes. Well, that, that I can't tell you how much that means to me. Um, I've had people who in my family who aren't therapists who read the book and they like it. But I haven't, this is really the first time a colleague has actually uh, told me in detail what they got out of the book. And this is exactly what I was hoping for. So uh, I really appreciate what you're saying. It, mean, uh, it means a tremendous amount to me. You get it. You really get it. So thank you. Oh, well, I, my pleasure. And one of the things I was also struck by, you, you mentioned aggression and, and how central aggression is working uh, in working with groups. Yeah. And aggression and guilt can be very closely tied. And I, I was struck during the book when you uh, would talk about working with a member around guilt yeah. and using uh, lines with them or saying to them, you can, can you feel guilty without acting guilty? Right. Right. And I would be curious to hear you elaborate or say more about the ways you understand or you work with guilt as a resistance or just as a, as a central emotional experience in a member or a group's life. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a good point too. I mean, um, <clears throat> Another the uh, to, to answer that question, I think a step back and a lot of the theory that I uh, employ in my book isn't just from psychotherapy or from psychology. I use theory from physics, believe it or not. And one of the theories that I use in physics has to do with um, the conservation of energy. You know, Einstein's theory that energy needs to be created or destroyed, but only change form. Well, the same applies for emotions. Emotions can either be put into words, they can be put into action, or they can put, be put into bodily symptoms. And so my goal, obviously, is, is to help people with the first one, to put the feelings into words. Because otherwise, uh, 
and I don't have to tell you, people go into action or develop symptoms and create chaos for themselves. So <clears throat> guilt is one of those feelings that, uh, you know, it, it has its pros and cons. Without guilt, there would be no society. I mean, we all grow up, hopefully, with a superego, but some people's superegos are crippling. And so um, one of the beauties of group is that the group could be compassionate with someone who's really in the throes of a, a guilty conscience and uh, take some of that burden off. And so <clears throat> when people get caught up in, like the other night, somebody had something that they, they came in and they said, um, I have something I really want to talk about, but I feel so guilty about it. I'm afraid I'm going to be judged. And my first thought was, well, probably nobody's judging you any more than you are. But I didn't say that at first. I said, well, if you don't want to talk about it, don't talk about it. But tell the group why you don't want to talk about it. So I go with the resistance. Tell us why you don't want to tell us. What's the worst that can happen? More often than not, what comes out is they'll say something. Well, they'll talk about themselves in the third person. They're like, uh, the one guy was so harsh with himself. Uh, uh, he says, you're an idiot. You'll never amount to anything. When someone says, describes <clears throat> himself in the third person, I say, whose voice is that? Who's taught? Well, it's my voice. No, you call yourself in the third, you refer to yourself in the third person. And uh, I'll go around the room and I'll say, well, particularly for people who know the person, who does this remind you of? And invariably, it's, it's a very harsh, superego, critical parent who has um, been incorporated into that person's psyche as a, you know, a toxic interject. It's really not them. And uh, it has a way of neutralizing all of that self-hatred when other people in the room put a relative spin on it that makes it less terrible. I mean, you know, when you ruminate and you get caught up in all that stuff, particularly if you're angry, <clears throat> most people in my groups get feel guilty because they're angry about something and they feel they shouldn't be angry. And so I'll say to somebody, you're shooting all over yourself. When they tell me they should do this or should do that, I try to use a sense of humor and, and, and to kind of nudge them out of that space. And I'll talk and I'll say, does anybody know in this group what that feeling is like? And so when people and the other, other people in the group begin to share it, it kind of normalizes the feeling. And the person, if they have a healthy enough ego, can begin to put it in perspective. But it takes a long time because guilt is... Uh, like I said, it, it ties us to the past. It ties us to an image of ourselves that uh, is almost um, in them in the in the group members' mind cast in stone when in fact it's not. So it, there are different ways around it, but it's always trying to get them to talk about it rather than put it into action, harm themselves, uh, or uh, or develop a symptom of one kind or another. Right. So, like, yeah, I'm, I'm struck by um, there. Really, there's a, there's a place for a healthy feeling of guilt. It separates us from from uh, sociopathic from the sociopaths. But um, when it, when we're so familiar and identified with it, and are just acting out of it without even realizing, when it's so syntonic, that's it. Seems like when it is becomes most insidious. Right. So, it, so no. make an ego alien. Mm -hmm. The syntosis that is. Uh, the syntonic uh, experience of it somewhat distant and the group provides that buffer. It can provide the buffer between the person and their very harsh superego. 
Well, I think it's also one of my favorite moments in group when a member that has been struggling with something personally in a very alienated kind of way realizes that other people in the same room have felt that way too. You just see how a person opens up, yes. how powerful that kind of normalization can be for them. Right. And obviously you could never get that in individual therapy. Just, right. Right. So yes, universal, making the feeling a universal feeling. And I think you hit on something earlier. In order to help somebody, I don't have to like them necessarily, but I do have to make a partial identification with them because there's no feeling that's alien. You know, if, if we're doing the work as therapists, I find that the people I have the most difficulty with in group remind me of a part of myself that I don't like. And that's when I really have to get back into my supervision or speak with a colleague. And more often than not, it's like... My supervisor, I'm now working with Jack Kerman. He's a great guy. He, he's so helpful to me because he manages to see stuff about what I'm talking about that, that I think is so awful. And it's not. It's just not. So, uh, And that changes everything. It just loosens the whole thing up. And I see it. Yeah, this guy is doing something that I've done. So, so what? <laughs> Just invites us to be fully human. Right. right. Well, one of, the, one of the perks of being this, I think, is that it forces, to do it right, it forces the group therapist more than the individual therapist to go to places in their psyche that they never would have gone anywhere in any other, in any other profession. To do it right, you have to be able to, willing to go to places that are really dark, you know? And I don't even individual therapists have to go there. Certainly, other professions should don't. So, right. Well, it reminds me of Christopher Bolas's work and how he talks about in order to treat the patient, the analyst has got to find that patient within themselves. Absolutely, and yet, you know, the work of uh, one of my favorite stories is the uh, <clears throat> from the fifty minute uh, the fifty minute hour by uh, Robert Linda wrote. A, a book about his, it was an individual therapy, but he wrote about his cases. And one of the best ones was uh, the jet propelled couch where he talks about him having treated a uh, NASA scientist who believed that he could travel from one planet to another at night. And first Linda says to him, no, you're not doing that. And the guy got crazier. And then Linda decided to join. He, he developed the concept of joining. So Linda said to him, uh, look, tonight when you go to Mars, I want you to collect so-and-so. And tomorrow, when, so the guy would come back with copious notes week after week until finally the patient says to him, doc, you got to stop this. I'm, I'm just making it up. And Linda says, no, you got to find, I got to know what's going on in Jupiter. The therapist lost his mind. <laughs> so the joining went too far. He got lost into the, so. Uh -huh. Occupational hazard. You can't get it. But that speaks to the importance of always be, you have to be in some kind of supervision, some kind of training, some kind of therapy yourself, even if it's just peers, because the unconscious is such, a, it's always waiting to trip you up. So, yeah, that's really well said. Well, I was also thinking earlier, because you mentioned that in addition to psychotherapy, you also rely on physics and other forms of uh, knowledge. Right. And I'm reminded that you're also a, a trained sociologist. Right, right, right. How does sociology impact your role as a group leader? Ah, wow, that's a great question. Um, it may take more time than we have to answer it. One of the, one of the, um, as I, as you well know, the most uh, 
disturbing events of the recent past has been the uh, the revelations about the uh, sexual harassment of women in all sorts of media. And one of the things that's come up in my own organization, EGPS, has been um, the complicity of members in participating in groups and organizations where, where groups do harm. And so the work of my, uh, as, a, as a sociologist, really came out in the first book. Because when I heard cases of these predators, even back then, in the literature, it was treated as if these were lone wolves, and they were, and they were. I mean, they were psychologically disturbed, sociopathic, and so on. But as a sociologist, I looked at it from a larger picture of both in terms of the organizations that allow this to go on, and also in the groups where people kind of make a deal the, the, the group members make a deal with the leader that if you take care of me, uh, <clears throat> then I will abdicate my responsibility to see what's right in front of my face. So that's where it's been coming in lately in terms of my, my writing about um, abuses of power and how that plays out. And as I said at the beginning of this interview, I was participating in groups where that took place. And uh, it was as a sociologist that I began to make sense of what was going on. And quite frankly, it's been very controversial because not everybody wants to hear about it because it raises anxiety and um, it, <clears throat> it has to do with boundaries and maintaining boundaries always raises anxiety, even if it's for the best. So it's complicated, but that's another one. I have a tremendous emotional investment in. <laughs> Well, as you say, it's a complicated topic, but it seems just uh, imperative that we talk about it and explore it, especially with the number of training institutes that involve learning by doing. Yes. And the implicit dual relationship of uh, being a member of a group where the leader is also in an evaluative role with the member. It's so obvious, right, when you think about it, but in the, in, in the way it gets played out, it's just incredible to me how people don't see it. You know, um, <clears throat> Michael Lewis in another, Michael Lewis wrote about the stock market. He said, you, you can't identify a problem if you, unless you know what you're looking for. So if you're not looking for it, you're not going to see it. Do we have time for an example or how? Sure. Go, uh, please go ahead with the example. I was once in a training group where the, uh, the people in the training group were also in the therapy group with the leader. I was, I was just in the training group. There was one woman in the group who complained bitterly that there were other people in that training group who were also patients who were treated better in the, in the institute in terms of teaching positions, uh, 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 representing the organization of various functions, so on and so forth. So <clears throat> she was told in the group that her problem with what was going on was based on her childhood experience of being not the favorite child in her family. The father favored the brothers and she was an outsider. And so this was all her transfers. This poor woman became more and more depressed and more and more anxious because she was being gaslit. She was being told that what she was perceiving wasn't the way it was. And I walked up to her after that. I, I knew I, I, what I had to say wasn't popular, but I walked up to her afterward. And I said, if you think this is all your problem, it's not. This is not just all your problem. But she was so invested in the situation, she didn't see it anyway. But the point is that when people are in dual relationships with each other, 
it's impossible to know what's transference and what's not. But to interpret all behavior as transference when it's not is crazy making. And that's the danger. You know, the first example of a iatrogenic reaction, like iatrogenic, you know, the, uh, the term for when you have, uh, the treatment produces a negative reaction in a cell, was actually in Freud's institute. Freud disdained academia, and so he set up his own freestanding uh, institute, and that's where the dual relationship started. One of his students, this guy, Victor Tausk, uh, wanted Freud to analyze him, and Freud didn't want to, and he sent this guy, Tausk, to uh, Alina Deutsch, and Tausk committed suicide. And Freud was just as happy to get rid of him. But to me, that was the first example of a, of a, of a dual relationship that created, in this case, a, a terrible reaction. Although Tausk was no angel himself. At the time that he died, he was engaged to one of his patients. So there's always that element of the past. When you train with somebody who has a poor idea of boundaries, it gets passed along to the general population of well, and I'm struck, um, I'm continually struck by lineage and how things get passed down through a lineage consciously and unconsciously. And one of the things that I think that we are continuing to, to struggle with and to work with that is kind of an unspoken part of the psychoanalytic lineage yeah. is, are these boundary crossings and these dual relationships and how frames get set up, but then they don't get followed through with. And I think that's one of the central thesis of the book that you wrote on emotional incest and group psychotherapy, the importance of a secure frame and that the frame is as much for the group leader and their emotional honesty, as you put it, as it is for the group member. You got it. You got it. And I, I think I should say that I, I'm not naive enough to think that because Robert Pepper said something is going to change everything. What I'm asking people to do is if leaders are going to alter the frame, then they must be prepared if they really care about the well-being of their group members to consider that perhaps not all negative treatment reactions are due to transference or resistance. When you, when you blur the boundaries, you open the door for all kinds of alterations that may not in fact be indicative, indicative of the patient's pathology. Maybe, but there may be other considerations and that's where the sociology comes in. Absolutely. Well, there, there's a whole other podcast interview in this. I would love to at some point to do another where we just get to talk about ethics and uh, how uh, training and, and how to work with some of these tensions. But I know we're coming up on, on our own time limit here. And um, a couple of things I'd like to find out, though, before the end of the interview. One is after 40 years in practice, I'd be curious to hear you say anything about what your current uh, cutting edge is as a therapist, where you're exploring, what's the next step for you that is enticing you at this point in your career? The next step that's what? Not tied, did you say? Uh, that's enticing you. That's uh, a current edge that you're working as a group therapist. Ah, well, that's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> look, we all have of time on this uh, on this planet my the last chapter of my book i call it the final chapter is talking about how i'm beginning to feel the, the pressure of time time is running out you know i mean we're all limited um my ultimate goal is to put the two books together i think that the techniques that were designed by the modern analysts are the best to work with uh difficult people i also think that the need for um maintaining the boundaries is incredibly important. 
my goal is to put the two things together and um, continue to do workshops. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to come out to Colorado and talk about this and get into more and show that it's possible to maintain a practice and be ethical at the same time, move people along. And look, well, why are we in this to begin with? It's, gratify, it's gratifying to watch people grow and change. And so um, maybe it's grandiosity of, me, uh, grandiosity of my own grandiosity, thinking that the two things can be put together. But from now until the end of my time, that's my, that's my quest. That, that's what gives me passion to do. And uh, I feel, I feel like I have something to contribute. So, yeah, it seems like that's the next step that where fate is leading you to find a way to uh, really unite these two conversations that actually happen in the two books into one narrative. That's right. Exactly right. Right. Well, I will look forward to, uh, will absolutely look forward to that. And uh, the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society, or actually we just rebranded to the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society because we um, absorbed Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. Uh, we would love to talk with you about how we could facilitate you coming out and working with some of our members and sharing these ideas. Wait, will you be at AGPA in uh, Houston? Absolutely. Can't wait. All right. Well, I'll be there. I'd love to meet you there. I'm doing a, a workshop on, on the book, and also I'm doing a, an open session about boundaries. So if, any, if you have any time to meet me or... And talk further I'd be I'd be more than happy to even sit down have a beer and talk so well fantastic and um also that's a it's a great reminder for the listeners of this podcast that are also a lot of them AGPA members and who attend the annual conference that if you're struck by what you've heard and you'd like to engage and hear more with Dr. Pucker he will be presenting it sounds like twice at the annual conference in Houston right twice an open workshop an open session and a workshop right Perfect. Would you would you also be willing to share with uh, listeners where they can find you, um, any websites or ways that they could uh, purchase your books and hear more about your work? Um, my website is drpepperphd.com, drpepperphd.com. And it has a link to the Amazon uh, books. It has a link to all my blogs and contact information. So just go to uh, just Google P drpepperphd.com and it'll, it'll direct you right to the, to the website. Everything's there. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Pepper, it has been a tremendous pleasure to have you on the Group Dynamics Dispatch and we will look forward to engaging with you and speaking with you again soon. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, I have to say, uh, uh, I think you were a brilliant interview. You asked the right questions. You got me to think about myself in a clearer way and, and you get it. So, it's good to know you, Angelo. Well, thank you so much. It's very, very gratifying to hear. Uh, I will look forward to following up with you soon. I look forward to hearing from you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.